1: I went in the summer. I don't really recommend going to Jerusalem in August. (laughs) Very, very, very high. Um, But this is when this course was being offered. And our teacher at Hebrew University took us in kind of underneath the church of the Holy Sepulcher, not uh, to the side. And he actually walked us into the first century Jewish tombs that were there.
0: Later than most people, midway upon the journey of her life, Ilka Knoppel became an archaeologist. She wrote her master's thesis in Jerusalem about how archaeology and literary evidence describes the Via Dolorosa, the path that Jesus took to his crucifixion, which Catholics remember in the Stations of the Cross. I asked her to walk us through it on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a podcast of theology and apologetics where I get to ask interesting people who've thought a lot about the big questions what they have figured out, to share their conclusions, to tell us what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this approach, this back and forth, will help us get closer to the truth and just have a really fun time having a really nice conversation. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Elka Kneppel, She is an archaeologist, and she's the author of The Search for Jesus' Final Steps, How Archaeological and Literary Evidence Reroutes the Via Dolorosa. Welcome, Elka.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Um, So I have a joke about a a guy who goes to the coffee shop. Guy walks into a a coffee shop, and he asks the barista, "Um, I'd like uh, coffee, no cream, please. And the barista says, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm afraid we're all out of cream. May I suggest coffee with no milk? (laughs) (laughs) And I I like to tell that one to my students, and they say, like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the Via Dolorosa is uh, known to Catholics as the Stations of the Cross, and we celebrate it especially uh, during Holy Week. Um, But before you tell us about what archaeology has taught you about the Via Dolorosa, would you tell us a bit about another via which is your faith journey and how you um went from being a Lutheran to a Methodist to a Catholic.
1: Sure, I would love to. Um my opinion is that uh I think faith is a lifelong journey. Just um just as you know you have different relationships in your life as you go on your life journey. Um, I think your relationship with God continues to change and hopefully you get closer. Uh, I feel like I have. I didn't even know I was baptized Lutheran until later in my life because I was raised Methodist hmm. uh, in a lovely little country church that was down the road from us. Um, wonderful people there. Um, I really felt uh, my my faith roots are in that church. It was a very open and welcoming kind of church. Uh, the the ladies there were um, still women that I think of as kind of little aunties. Um, mm-hmm. They were not afraid to tell us if we were misbehaving after church. We were running around like crazy little kids. They'd tell us to calm down. So it was very neighborly uh, church that we went to. Um, and that is where my the basis of my faith was in the Methodist church. As I got older... I became more drawn to in various ways and this is like college age I got more interested in learning about Mother Mary.
0: Mm. And
1: one of the reasons was she's as I became a mother to me she is she is our spiritual mother, a perfect mother, wants someone to emulate, of course you can never be like her but an example to look up to. And in the Protestant at least for me, this is my opinion, in the Protestant church, we don't focus very much on Mary except around Christmas time. And in the Catholic church, she's much more prominent. And that over the years, I kind of met people who kind of drew me into their uh, Catholic church. And then when I was uh, married and my son was born, my, um, husband, my ex-husband, uh, was Catholic and he wanted to raise our son in the Catholic faith. And that kind of got me into RCIA and I became a Catholic. Um, I'm still, um, I feel like on my uh, spiritual life journey along with, with God, I just feel like he's always showing me new things. Um, when I went to college, I actually studied um, Jewish studies, hmm. which my brother kind of teased me and said, Oh, now you can become Jewish. And I was like, well, no, (laughs) but what was so wonderful about that was understanding the Jewish faith. It made me feel like my Christian faith got a lot stronger because understanding the Jewish faith and the meaning behind some of the festivals and the um, just some of the the sayings, the beliefs, uh, their core, you know, beliefs as well, Made me understand why Jesus did certain things, the meaning behind some of the things that Jesus did, even mm-hmm. better than I did before. So, uh, and that's what I mean when you're const. At least I feel like you're constantly evolving in your relationship with with God. So, who knows? We'll end up, um, hopefully, much even more closer to God.
0: So, yeah, Amen. Um, okay, would you talk about archaeology and how you got into that?
1: Well, that is that is uh, my journey to archaeology is proof that there is life after divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, I am in my late fifties, and my life was set a certain way. I had gotten married, I had a child, I was going in this one direction, and that changed uh, after eighteen years of marriage. I was uh, got divorced, and that led me to a whole nother kind of journey because it was instead of a wife and a mother, I was just a mother and my son was getting ready to go to college. And then that the mother part kind of it never totally falls away, but it, the day to day was going to fall away. And instead of looking at it as a scary thing, I thought of it, this is an opportunity to for me to go back to school and get my master's. But what do I want to get it in? And I'd always been interested in, in history and a friend of mine wanted to go to Israel and she said, um, why don't you go with me? Hmm. And this was 2011. And I was like, I'd love to. So we ended up going to Israel and we went on a with the, with a term of pilgrimage. So we were hitting the, um, the, the Christian sites, which was absolutely fascinating. If you ever get a chance to, to go to Israel, you should, because I would love that. Yeah. All the places that you hear about to actually stand there in the place where you've heard the scriptures and it just, it's just mind blowing, at least to me, it's just mind blowing that this is, wow, this is the actual place. And we were at the white synagogue um, and the tour uh, guide was telling us, this is, this is Peter's house. Archaeologists believe this is Peter's house and this is why. And he described the type of house it was, the location and how it compared to scripture um, what's in the Bible, how it was described. And I just had a little epiphany right there, then and there, um, that I was like, this is what I want to do when I grow up. So when I came back from my journey, um, I can, started can looking Can you tell
0: us what's Peter's house like?
1: It's it's very interesting. It's uh, There's a church built on top of it, so you really can't oh. see Peter's house so much. But... Um, the whole fact that the church is built on top of Peter's house and this is the actual location. Cause I'm a very literal person. So I'm like, this is the place that, that Peter's house was. That's incredible that I'm standing on the same spot where the apostles uh, perhaps had stood. Um, So it kind of all brought it home to me. And uh, I came back and looked at a couple different programs and it ended up going to um, Towson to Baltimore Hebrew Institute and enrolling in Jewish studies and focusing on Near Eastern um, archaeology. So
0: yeah, and you know, I
1: ended up getting into archaeology.
0: Right. Um, and I suppose that like that's a big theme of your of your um, thesis is that a lot of the things that we think should be the way we read about them have been changed over the last couple thousand years. And it's kind of hard to search for yes. um, the Via Dolorosa and, for example, Peter's. Peter's house. I went to the Semitic Museum uh, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, part of Harvard, and they have a uh, an ancient um, Judean home. And the way they have it is set up as two stories, where the downstairs is sort of the storage area with the animals. And then you go up the stairs and that's where the people sleep. Um, and so for me, that was quite interesting, the proximity between people and their uh, animals. Uh, but I, I don't imagine Peter's house would have looked like that since he was, if probably would have been different given all the fishing and so on. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the Via Dolorosa. We we treat the gospel as a work of literary history and an item of faith, but you're looking for evidence on the ground and the ground that keeps on changing. And in, a, and in addition to that, uh, from reading your thesis, I see that many of the things that I kind of assumed were in the gospels are not at all. They've just been added in, uh, Later as part of tradition would you would you walk us through the walk
1: um yes, I would love to um but uh, let me say up front there's yeah there's there's uh, archaeology will um, tell you a lot of things but it's not going to tell you exactly where Jesus walked because first of all we have no maps at the current time of what Jerusalem looked like in uh, thirty uh, c e A.D. when uh, Jesus was there and when he was um, in his ministry, because it was completely destroyed. Jerusalem was completely destroyed in seventy uh, C.E. So, um, and that's like I said, to date we don't have any maps, but that's not that doesn't mean at some point in the future they're not going to uncover some mosaic mm-hmm. of Jerusalem how it was at that time. So um, I'm not going to be able to point exactly. And this is kind of hard too because usually I'm, I'm a visual person. So I wanna, you know, I wanna show you these maps. I wanna show you these things. But um, so I'm not gonna be able to say he started here. He went to point one. He went to point two. He went to point um, three. Um, but having said that, uh, I do believe that we can point to, um, we can view the starting point. As pretty certain as being at the Praetorium, which was on the west side of town, and um, the ending point is, I believe, at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm-hmm. And I can
0: tell you, I can get more into the details of that. Um, yeah, as a but- is a Praetorium is sort of a fortress or a garrison, or
1: well uh, the uh, the way the Via Dolorosa is now, it came about in its present form with some variations in the medieval times. And that was because the Franciscans had control of that area of the land in in Jerusalem. Um, so the Praetorium is underneath where the city of uh, the, the Tower of David is now, and the Tower of David does not date to the time of, of uh, King David. Um, that's more of an oral tradition, but the oh. Praetorium is there. I hope uh, they're talking about maybe doing a possible archaeological excavation there. There there has been some in the past, but they're looking at maybe doing another one. So hopefully they do that. I, I I'll be able to volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Antonio Fortress is where the Via Rosa currently starts. The Most archaeologists don't believe it was there because the Antonio Fortress was uh, very small. Um, it was built next to the uh, Temple Mount, and it was built there so that the Romans could keep an eye on um, people who were visiting the Temple Mount. When you have somebody like Pontius Pilate, who's a pretty high government official, he's not going to want to stay in this little military uh, installation. Instead, the Praetorium was what he used as his government headquarters when he was there, and it's on more on the west side of town. And it falls into into the description of what they talk about when Pontius Pilate brought Jesus out to show him to the crowds because if you can envision on the west side of Jerusalem there's a very steep hill so there that would be a perfect gathering place for people to to stand there like hundreds maybe thousands of people to stand and to listen to somebody that came out on those stone steps there and wanted to talk to the crowd it's a it's you know, good audible,
0: um, location. You could really project over this, this area. That makes so much sense because, you know, at a time when there's no microphones, you need to be in a place where a lot of people can hear you clearly, which is why we have things like, oh, those old Greek amphitheaters or, um, as, as why Jesus would stand in a boat to preach because it would, you know, you could reach a lot of people just with, just with the projection of your voice. So that, that makes a lot of sense.
1: Yes, and they one of the one of the things they point to also is the um, the Via Dolorosa says that there's the lithostrosis that they stood on the big big stones, and close to where the Antonio Fortress was, there's a what is now a convent and kind of on the it's not really a basement, but then the lower level there's big stones big stones on the floor, and they're like these are the ones, they're not they they only date. They date to maybe the fourth century. Oh wow! Um, yeah, but they don't date to the time of of Jesus. But when you go back to the Praetorium, again, there is these large stones that could have been used, uh, could have been the lithostrosis that they were talking about, that um, are located in that area.
0: Yeah, and there's a point where you write that um, the, I'm, I'm gonna I have I don't have the quotation here, but where that the, the actual City is now beneath the ground level, right? That what? Yes. Sorry, I got it. You right, you right. The present-day Via Dolorosa is more than twelve meters or thirteen yards above the pavement of the old road built by Herod the Great, which existed in the first century. So that's like thirty-six feet. How, that's right. That's astounding. How did so much sand and dirt come to cover it?
1: well um it's kind of like if you look at um troy there were so many different layers so in in 70 ce the jerusalem is completely destroyed by the roman army hadrian ah. comes in and rebuilds it so over the years there's been rebuildings and you know it just eventually gets up to a level where um the structure that was there 2000 years ago is pretty far below what what we look at as the current city streets
0: Right. No, I think, you know, um, I I studied the 16th century, which when I talk to somebody like you feels like last week. But, uh, you know, Mexico City, for instance, is built on Tenochtitlan, and it's significantly above where the old Aztec capital was. And exactly as you say, it's because that city was destroyed. And so when you build on a destroyed city, you have to build on top of it. So that makes sense. I had forgotten, I shouldn't have forgotten that Jerusalem had been destroyed. uh, Did you say in the year 70? Is that right?
1: Yes, seventy yeah. CE.
0: Yeah. Okay, so and, now it's really hard, right? Because you can't really dig, can you? Because there's a there's a city on top of it, or can you?
1: Well, it, that can get a little tricky too, because um, uh, archaeology um, usually involves politics in some way, and mm-hmm. especially in Jerusalem, where you have very three very strong faiths, and mm-hmm. uh, it can have implications. What you find could have implications. On to who who you know who was on this land at a certain time. So I don't want to I don't want to get into all of that. But um, Israel is very serious and very structured about their archaeology. They have the Israel Antiquities um, Authority. So nobody's is just going in and digging holes over there. You have to have a permit. You have to have a plan. You know, there's there's lots of scholars, lots of wonderful, very incredibly smart archaeologists that work over there. Um, so they'll, they'll try to dig where they're interested in, but there's a lot of hoops that they have to jump through. And, um, you know, so it's not just a willy nilly, let's go dig a hole over here. Cause I think it might, might be over here kind of thing.
0: Given all that. And I know that's a lot, <laughs> but given all that, would you walk us through it? Imagine I, I, a pilgrim, I arrive in Jerusalem next week and I want to walk the steps of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa. What would it be like for me? And then as we go along, would you tell us what you think is probably true to the experience two thousand years back, and what has kind of been invented since?
1: So there's there's fourteen different stations of the cross, mm-hmm. which mirrors the Via Dolorosa, and uh, what had happened in the medieval times when people start coming and they want to they want to to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Um the Franciscans are like, Well, here, follow us. This is this is what happened. And they were so enamored with it and so full of faith that they came back and they put the stations of the cross in a lot of different churches. It's the Catholic church, but then um I think some Lutheran churches have it as well. To you know, and during Holy Week coming up to Easter, people like to to walk those stations of mm-hmm. the cross to remember the um what you know Jesus did for us. Yes. So um so station 1 where where Jesus is condemned to death to me that is at the praetorium at Herod's palace so you'd want to go to the Tower of David because that's that's the actual location. Um, a lot of the stations there's no way we can tell where they are. For example, station 2 where Jesus is made to carry the cross. Uh, you know th- there's not a point that I can point you to to say oh this is this is where he he got that um, yeah. That's more of a nebulous kind of out there kind of thing where um, the Romans love to do their crucifixions and they love to, to have people carry the cross. Now, whether they carried the entire cross mm-hmm. or whether they carried the cross, just the, the straight part that went across mm-hmm. um, that's kind of been in debate because the entire cross would have been very, very heavy. But on the other hand, where, they wanted to make an example of this person, Jesus, they may have had him carry the entire cross as well. So, and that was their whole point is if you defy, if you defy the Romans, this is what's going to happen to you. And there are literary accounts of other people that were crucified that they made walk through the different um, alleyways and streets of Jerusalem at the time. So they could get as much bang for their buck as it were. So they could show all these people, this is, this is what happens when you go up against the Romans, you're going to have to, you know, not only are we going to crucify you, but we're going to make you carry your cross through town and be humiliated before. Yeah. Um, so so, there's, so
0: there's a division here, right? Some people say it's very likely just the cross being because of the size of it, and some people say, no, no, this is a, a, a humiliation, so make him carry the enormous giant thing. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah.
1: So just just physically, the... Um the carrying of that must have been either one
0: mm-hmm.
1: um you're talking a huge you know cross beam um yeah. so either one would have been very physically taxing but uh i've i've and I've read both things i've I've read where people are like, no, because you know what I just said that he carried the entire thing or um some people say no, it would have been too heavy. He just carried the cross beam because the And the Romans did reuse the stake, the main stake that's in the ground. And they would just, you know, you're already tied to the crossbeam. They just, you know, put the new crossbeam up there. What Um, happens next? All right. So station three uh, falls in line with station seven, as well as station nine, um, where Jesus falls. Now, this isn't, this is not in scripture. Mm -hmm. um, But if you think about it logically, if he's carrying this, this heavy cross, that he probably is gonna fall mm-hmm. um but the, again, the location of that is going to be um it, it, there's no way to to pinpoint that right. there's there's right. just no way, but if you notice the stations though with the the station there where he falls uh is three and three of course being uh you know a holy number um station seven which is again a holy number and then station 9 was a, which is a multiple of 3 so there there's probably um some some meaning to that when it was this is added as a you know as a oral tradition later on that that Jesus falls the 3 right.
0: times and so that the for yeah for reading your your um paper was very interesting to me because i kind of assumed that was all scriptural but no that was just added as tradition that Jesus falls once twice three times likewise uh veronica i learned from from yes. is is uh, you know and i sh- i should have noticed this but you know you kind of assume you you've seen everything in in, in the bible but not so she's 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 uh, a a tradition
1: exactly right okay. um as a station 4 where jesus meets his mother and now she you know mary did follow him so mm-hmm. it's very it's very um believable and and probable that she was following him along um when he was going through this yeah but there's again there's nothing in scripture that says you know Jesus actually meets Mary yeah and again that's something you can't prove archeologically right now the interesting thing is one of the things that um i think we can we can show Archaeological evidence for where it began, archaeological evidence for where the Via Dolorosa ended. The only other station that I think we can say this is where we think it happened is station five, which is where Simon of Serene Uh helps uh, Jesus carry the cross. And this is because Simon of Serene was coming to Jerusalem and he was probably coming. If he's coming that way, he's probably coming from the north. And there is... There would, there's gates throughout the the city walls in Jerusalem. Um, there is what what is known as the garden gate, and this is where Simon is coming through, and this is where the Roman army is probably going out, um, the Roman army with, you know, forcing Jesus to carry this cross. And if he is falling and stumbling, which he probably is, they probably pulled uh, Simon out of the crowd and said, here, help them. Mm-hmm. Um, Nachman Avigad actually did some, an archeological excavation. It is what um, it's now known as the, the card cardo in the Jewish quarter. And they and it's, if you walk down the cardo, there's this big stone structure. It looks like a well. And if you look down into the well, you can actually see this old garden gate. And he, uh, did a lot of research on that and what he found. Uh, most archaeologists do believe that that was the garden gate. And most of them do believe that that is where the second wall ran. And that will come into, um, I'll talk about that more again when we talk about the the, the site of the crucifixion, because that's very important, the second wall. It's never been archaeologically uh, documented um, and that's because we think it was completely built over. We know where there are some sections of the first wall and the third wall uh, still exists n- now as the current um, outline of Jerusalem. But the second wall has never been archaeologically verified. Very but there's yeah. that garden gate there. Pretty sure that that would have been leading out to this garden, would have been leading out of Jerusalem. And that's probably where the second wall was.
0: Okay. Okay, so what happens next?
1: Um, next is Station Six, where Veronica wipes the uh, face of Jesus, which, again, is an, a later added on tradition. Um, and in my in my paper, I go through what what the cloth would have been. So it was either would have been linen, probably, or wool. Hmm. And I talk about the difference the differences between that. Um, if you were of the higher class, you probably were wearing linen. And the lower class were probably wearing the the more accessible and less um, costly wool.
0: Yeah. Does it exist to this day? Right? Can you? Is it in Jerusalem or is it somewhere else? The veil. The.
1: Um, that's debatable. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, most probably, there something. Like that organic is not gonna be still in existence after two thousand years. There's different places that say that they have the veil of uh Veronica and it has the the face of Jesus on there. I'm not saying that's true or untrue. I'm just saying archaeologically I can't there's no way to verify that
0: yeah, so you know talking with you forces me to realize how little I know about the things that I've always thought I knew. Like I I, <laughs> I, I, I had a, a similar interview, and we were talking about um, Saint Paul, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, like on the road to Damascus, when he fell from his horse, and he was blinded." And um, the my guest had said, "Like, well, he, there's no mention of a horse, so like we just add things to the story, <laughs> and they become, you know." Well,
1: um, I think the more you, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so keep going you' you were you're taking us um, to number seven
1: that's that's the second fall okay um and then station eight is where Jesus talks to the women which um is is again it's something you can't
0: verify archaeologically mm-hmm. so um station nine is the oh where... and the, and you, and you have some speculation that they might be professional mourners like yes that, yeah
1: that's uh one of the theories is that they were professional mourners which was an actual thing there where families would hire um, people to make a, make a scene and, you know, say how much this person was missed and that type of thing. Yeah. So stations 10 through 14 take place in the area that is now covered by the church of the Holy Sepulcher. Jesus is stripped of his garments, which was Traditionally, what the Romans did when they were crucifying someone, they put you up there um, with barely anything on. And what's interesting about that is, it, is they talk about how the Romans gambled over uh, Jesus's clothes. And there was, um, there are generally five pieces of clothing. And there's, when you have a quaternion which is known as, as your little crucifixion team. There's four Roman soldiers and you have a centurion that's that's the head of it. So that would actually be five, but it's just the four soldiers that are actually involved in doing the crucifixion. The centurion is off doing whatever centurions do because the um, four soldiers know what they're up to. And there's some probably so many crucifixions going on at one time. So there is archaeological evidence of... Um, either gambling or divination because uh, people will, archeologists will argue, argue over the exact meaning of the knuckle bones and it's mm-hmm. the sheep and, and goat knuckle bones where it's uh, was it just simply gambling that the Romans did or in some quarters are like, no, this was actually used for, you know, predicting the future, kind of a divination kind of thing. I think it's probably both. Um, there's, Many camps, many Roman camps that they have found with different games and um gambling implements like this. And in Jerusalem it's the it's the knuckle bones that they used. So and this is
0: where uh, we get dice from, right? Because the knuckles of a of a sheep are kind of hexagonal. I mean uh, hexa they're like they're cubic. They're kinda of like you're kind of cubes.
1: Yes. You're yeah. correct. Astragalia. That's what the archaeological term is. Okay. (laughs) So typically you have four soldiers and for a a man in Jerusalem at that time, he typically had five pieces of clothing. He'd have an outer garment. He'd have a tunic or a cloak. He'd have a head cloth, a loin cloth, and a pair of sandals. Hmm. So that's, that's five pieces of clothing. So this kind of does run with the story of, the four Roman soldiers gambling over Jesus's clothes because they probably each took one. And then there's one thing left. Now he had a tunic that was all one piece, which is it's unusual for someone of his financial means to have something that nicely, it was more of a a wool sewn together. It would have had seams, the seamless tunic. You know, one of the thoughts is that one of his followers that was more, um, well off financially, mm-hmm. may have donated this to him. Yeah, so that's uh, one of the things that they were. They think they may have been gambling for because you you don't want to tear it up. You don't want to split it into four pieces.
0: Yeah, and then just you know, back then people had maybe one outfit or maybe two if they had right. a little more money because clothing was very it was very laborious first to spin the thread and then to weave the fabric and then to you know to make it. It's a lot. It's very valuable your clothes. So. This was worth a lot, right? It's hard to imagine now in in the age where we just have so many things made by machines and everybody has, you know, 20 t-shirts, no problem. Right. Yeah. Station
1: 11 is where Jesus is crucified. There's very, very little evidence of crucifixion in the archaeological record. There is one heel bone that was discovered um, where the stake is through the ankle and it's bent so apparently they, the Roman soldiers could not pull it back out of this ankle, and it was the person's um, body was given over to their family, and, and he was buried with this stake still in there because they reused everything. You know, they're going to pull out the, the stake. They're going to mm-hmm. pull out um, the nails. They're going to reuse them over and over again. So that, that may be one of the biggest factors why we haven't found any archaeological evidence of crucifixion. In-
0: well, what about bones? Like you know, Golgotha is the is the skull, right? Is it or does everybody right. get taken and and buried from the place of?
1: Uh, there's different thoughts on that. It is Golgotha means the place of the skull, and historically that was the name of this area. So that lends to the oral tradition of there were crucifixions that took place here. Um, Because right now where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, it's included in the city of Jerusalem. And that's why some people are like, well, that can't be the place because it wouldn't, the Jews would not have allowed crucifixions to take place within Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And at the time of Jesus, this area would have been outside the walls of Jerusalem. One is because of the location of the garden gate. And the gates are always named for what is outside of them. Mm. So if this gate was in the second wall, there would have been a garden outside of there. And there's archaeological evidence of a quarry in that area as well. So a garden, a quarry, um, this would have have lent itself to... Yes, this is outside of, of the walls of the city at the time of Jesus. And there's also... There are, um, we had a, uh, I had a class one time where I went in the summer. I don't really recommend going to Jerusalem in August. <laughs> very, very, very hot. Yeah. Um, but this is when this course was being offered. And our teacher at Hebrew University took us in kind of underneath the church of the Holy Sepulcher, not uh, to the side. And he actually walked us into the first century Jewish tombs that were there. Oh, wow. So there is no way, if these tombs date to the first century, there's no way this would have been inside the, the the city at that time. Yeah. So that's further archaeological evidence that this area was outside the walls of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. But now what would have then been a hill is now all underneath a church. The Church of Holy true, Sepulcher.
1: yeah, but if you if you're familiar with Jerusalem, it, it very much goes from east to west. It rises very steeply, so at, and where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is is one of the highest points around there, and the Romans always like to crucify their people on the highest uh, geological place because again, it's showing here we are, we are Rome look what we can do to you if you don't um, listen to what we say mm-hmm. and you defy our laws. Yeah. So they want it in a nice high area. Um, and there is, if you go into the church of the Holy Sepulchre where the edif edicule is underneath of there, this, and this is where they um, several years ago, they had to redo that whole structure because it was becoming unstable and they had to go down into the edicule and, and what they found down there was that the, there is a tomb and it does date to
0: the time of um, the first century CE. And edicule means just little little edifice, little house.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that covers the actual tomb that Jesus was buried in. If you go to the right, you have to go up these really steep stairs and it's this high rock outcropping. And that is where they um, say that's where the, the cross actually was. You know, ar- archaeologically, you can say, yeah, this is this is a very high spot here and probably the, one of the highest points in Jerusalem.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: outside the the walls of of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Very probable that this could have been the place. Most archaeologists believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is the actual place where Jesus was crucified and then was buried before he rose
0: again. Yeah. Well, I think the way you explained it is very compelling. And I also think it's the sort of thing you wouldn't forget over time, right? There's such a important place. You would everybody would show their kids and their grandkids and their disciples and so on.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's um in archaeology we have uh, there's a thing known as oral tradition mm-hmm. where um, you hear stories that have been around the air you know, whatever the society is, this has been around for a while. So you have to remember so it's Jerusalem is destroyed completely in 70 CE. Um, the story is that Constantine's mother, Helena, is the first archeologist because she goes to Jerusalem and this area is pointed out to her that this was where um, Jesus was buried. Now this is 300 years later and Hadrian had built a temple to Venus on that site. So the site ironically is preserved Oh, and wow. when, when Jerusalem is destroyed again, um, they end up building the the church there. It's changed in, in a little bit over the years. Um, it's been added on to and things like that. But it's, you know, the oral tradition was that that's where Jesus had been crucified and had been buried. Even though it's 300 years later, um, we always give we always like to listen to oral tradition. Now, it's not mm-hmm. going to be it's it going to be exactly correct. Probably not, but there's usually a grain of truth in oral tradition. So, Helena is told that this is this is the place where uh Jesus was crucified and is buried. She um now this is where it veers off from archaeology that you can't prove. She supposedly uh finds the true cross that's still there. Um unfortunately, there are many, many pieces of the true cross. Throughout the world. Yeah. So who's to say which, you know, if it's actually a true cross, if you put them all together, they said it would build like 20 crosses. So
0: um, right. Cannot be proven archaeologically. Right. Or, Or nor falsified either. So it's hard to. It's hard to say too much about it. Um, I think you've taken us beautifully through the whole Via Dolorosa, and I know we're almost out of time. What, what's your next project?
1: Well, actually, <laughs> I, I really need to retire because I just don't have enough time to work on. On I have three main projects going right now. Um, I'm working on a book about my great aunt mm-hmm. who was killed in Hitler's secret euthanasia program. Um, that's my real priority because yeah. we had we went this summer to Germany and had a, a Stuppelstein um, place for her in Magdeburg. What is a um, Stuppelstein? Is, it's, uh, it's a little brass plaque on a piece of stone, and it's done by this artist named Gunter Deming, and he has placed thousands of them, um, and it commemorates victims of National Socialism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, 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 by far the majority are Jewish people, Um, But there are, you know, like the disabled that were killed in the euthanasia program, too, um, can be commemorated through this. Sure. And it's a beautiful project. Um, The the stone is placed in front of the place that the person last lived freely. So um, we put the stone in front of um, where her parents lived, where she was before she was in the hospital and uh, ended up not coming out because of this. Um, very evil program that that was basically getting rid of all the useless eaters.
0: Yeah. So
1: I'm trying to tell her story on that. So I'm working on uh, finishing up that manuscript and submitting it to a a publisher. And then I've kind of fallen into some Baltimore archaeology and some Irish history uh, during COVID. Hmm. I was like, well, you know my I live on off of Padonia Road and I'm like well wow, that's kind of an odd name where did that come from well it was named after Richard Padian who was an Irish immigrant that settled here in Baltimore County and come to find out he was one of the leaders of the Ballykill Klein rebellion in Ireland right before the great famine started and he emigrated here in 1847 um, and helped build, build my local church so there's been I've been chasing that down as the archaeological project And um, with some other professional archaeologists that I know, we've been looking into the Gilmore family. We did an archaeological survey of a castle that's in Lock Raven Reservoir, known as the Glen Ellen Castle, uh, which there's only the footprint remains. But through that survey, um, the the family is just very interconnected to other uh, famous people. Um, their impact that the Gilmores had, it's just pretty, pretty interesting. So yeah, um, searching, following those, those leads down. So Wonderful.
0: yeah, it's been fun. Well, Elka, it has been a great pleasure to to meet you. And I uh, thank you so much for, for taking us along on the Via Dolorosa. I look forward to the day when I get to go there myself, um, which uh, I don't know when that. Well,
1: thank you for, very much for having me.
0: Would you uh, close us with a with a blessing for our listeners and their families in our in our troubled world?
1: Yes, I certainly will. One of my favorites is the priestly benediction that the Lord gave to Moses. It's uh, Numbers six twenty four through twenty twenty four through twenty six. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
0: Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross Be born for me, for you And hail, hail the word made flesh The babe, the son Chris O'Dinitz and Ilka Knuppel recorded this conversation on Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. The Feast of All Saints. The day we celebrate all of the saints, including those whose names we don't know. It's a practice begun in the year 844 by Pope Gregory IV. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website www.english.op.org I'm Chris Houdinius. Please email me with comments or questions or ideas for the show at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Oh, and I have some homework for you. In the next episode of our podcast, I'll be talking with the Catholic writer Jonathan Fessenden about two movies, Silence by Martin Scorsese from 2016 and The Scarlet and the Black by Jerry London from 1983. So you should watch them if you want to. You can watch them both on Amazon. Silence is $4 to rent, and The Scarlet and the Black is free with commercials. I bet you could find them other places too. They're both good movies, and I'm looking forward to having a good talk about them. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds God and angels sing.